We're in a series at the minute in Redeemer, a preaching series um, that will be coming to an end in early July called Steps of Faith, From the Known to the Unknown. And uh, we're really looking at the lives, as we've been discussing over these weeks, of the ancients, these men and women whose, whose stories are recorded in the scriptures, in the Holy Scriptures, and essentially their stories, their lives, show us what life with like Life with God is like. Um, Hebrews 11 is this kind of like a roll call of the ancients in the New Testament. You can read that. The the author of Hebrews is unknown, but that author just lists these different men and women like Cain and Abel, Enoch, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Moses, Joseph, Rahab, and on and on. And right through the prophets to to Christ himself. And we have this phrase, which is the great cloud of witnesses that have ran the race before us, cheering us on. And it's this idea that we're we're located today as Christians. We're in a story. We are living in a story that started way before us and is going to go way beyond us. And it's good to anchor ourselves in that story. Um... And we've seen in this series that faith, steps of faith, faith is not about certainty. Um, It's not about knowing everything and knowledge and belief necessarily. Belief's important, but ultimately it's it's a whole different thing. And that's the thing we've been drawing out of these character character studies as we've gone through. I'm going to look at one today, but Anne Lamott, she says this, the opposite of faith is not doubt but it's certainty. Actually, certainty is the opposite of faith because if there is certainty, you don't need any faith. Certainty is missing the point entirely. Faith includes noticing the mess, the emptiness, the discomfort, and letting it be there until some light returns. So I love this idea that faith is this participation in that story. We locate ourselves in a story, the God story, and it's the road that brings meaning and truth and love and beauty to our lives. And so if you've got doubts today, if, if you're a little bit weary today, you're, it's perfect. Because when you look at the story of God, it's full of misfits and flawed people that are weary and burned out and full of doubt and fear. And yet God is in the midst of it all. And indeed, faith is trusting in God in the midst of the unknown. Um, and so that is what faith is, a place of deep, deep trust. I love my... I always talk about Eugene Peterson. He's my hero. <laughs> my hero. He's a pastor. He's now passed away in, in the States, in Montana. But he says this, that when our lives, when we submit our lives to what we read in the scriptures, we find that we are not being led to see God in our stories, but that our story is in God's. That God is the larger context and plot and narrative in which our stories find themselves. Um, we don't make this thing up, Christianity. We don't, we don't make it up. We, we, we can have, we've been drawn into this story. We've been swept up in it. And I love this definition of, of faith, that faith is choosing to participate in that story. It's choosing to participate in that story, especially when we don't have all the facts or the understanding ahead. And so I'm going to read today a little bit of scripture here to get us going today. It's from Hebrews 11. And it's a continuation of that roll call. and says this, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, 
David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength. That's a little portion at the end of that roll call. And there's a character that I want to talk about today, and that's David. It's David, King, King David. And believe it or not, I actually didn't, I'd never really thought of this before, but there is nobody in the whole of Scripture that is written about more. There's 66 chapters dedicated to this character. It's kind of it's fascinating. And so we're going to spend four and a half hours looking at his life. <laughs> so he was, a great, he was a great leader. He's notably Israel's greatest king. He, was, he wasn't born into royalty. He he entered life as a humble shepherd. Um, Ian Colville will tell you about that. If you want to know about shepherding, speak to Ian after today. And he rose to fame, um, I guess, by founding this dynasty. Um, he became a, a central figure, not only in Christianity, obviously Judaism, but also in, in Islam too. First Samuel 16, 18 describes him as a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, a handsome man, and that the Lord was with him. And you can, you can see from the book of Psalms in the scriptures, the songbook of the Bible is written largely by David and David's musicians. We can see that David was not only a warrior, but he was a poet. There was a sensitive side to this man that was expressed in his artistry. He was a creative poet king, a fascinating person. And the scripture describes him as a man after God's own heart. You kind of have heard that phrase before, perhaps if you've been brought up in church. And yet, here's the truth. Like, David was, he was, he was no choir boy. Like, he, he's held up in high regard for many reasons, but when you read the scriptures... You see an individual who's deeply complex and deeply flawed. Um, there was darkness in, in David. We're going to look a little bit about that today. And there was failure, but, the, but there was great character. All of it in the mix. Um, so we're going to look at those three aspects today. And the first one I want to look at is, is, is David's victory. One of these victories in his life. The nation of Israel was under pressure. There was a, it was a turbulent time um, when this story happens. The leaders wanted a king like the other nations, and they were tired of worshiping a king that was invisible. God, they wanted a real physical king, and they got one in Saul. And Saul was now king of Israel, and slowly but surely the nation of Israel had been slipping away from, from God. And there comes this moment in, in 1 Samuel 17 where there's this major battle. You'll have heard of this, especially when you, when you follow sport because there's that David and Goliath match on at the weekend where there's the underdog and then there's the favorites. You've heard that played out. It's actually pervasive in our culture, that idea of David and Goliath. And this is the story that I'm going to look at first. The Israelites <clears throat> were frozen in fear because the Philistine people had this, this new weapon, you could say, which was this very large person, um, this gladiator called Goliath. And everyone was scared of this, of this, of this gladiator called Goliath. And David, <clears throat> he wasn't. <clears throat> he came to Saul. 
And he said, let no one lose heart on account of this. Your servant will go and fight. He basically puts up his hand and he goes, put me in. <laughs> put me in, coach. I can do this. Um, and Paul, uh, Saul says, you're not able to go, go against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. And he's been a warrior from his youth. But David was persistent. And he says this, your servant, talking about himself, has been keeping his father's sheep when a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, I struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. Uh, any lions or bears up at Glenside in? Not sure. <laughs> when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, the Lord be with you. So David's not a king. He's a young shepherd boy at this point, but he puts his, puts his hand up. Perhaps he's very confident, arrogant. What's kind of driving David here? And I don't want to make this necessarily a very Sunday school talk, but armed with this sling goes the story. He picked up a stone. He, he slung it at Goliath's head. He defeats Goliath. He kills Goliath. He then beheads Goliath. And the nation was, were jubilant. This was like the job that the king really should have been performing. David was performing. He was nearly, there was like a signpost to his kingship happening. And he was only a young boy at this point. In fact, Saul really should have done this kind of job. He should have been leading from the front. And he kind of abdicated that responsibility. And, and, and this is a signpost the scriptures are kind of telling us about this young shepherd boy who's rising to to kingship. And when facing this challenge ahead of him, it's that verse about the lion and the bear that really strikes me. It, because David has this challenge and he summons courage and faith when he remembers, when he, when he remembers back to things that have happened in his story, when he was out in the fields in total obscurity and he was looking after the sheep and the Lord rescued him from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. And I'm sure there was some skill involved in that too. But the way that David was understanding this was that I was there and I was using my skill. But there was also a lot of the Lord's grace on that moment. The Lord was with me. So there's kind of both hands there. And so we have this phrase, the lion and the bear. And I think that's the reality that David was, he had courage and faith to face the challenge ahead of him. Because he was able to look back and point to God was with me then. God was with me before. I came through that before. He, he recognized that, that God was the source of his, his existence, his life, and all possibility. And in a sense, yes, back in those days on the fields as a shepherd boy, there was training going on. There was, he was emerging. He was learning there was, in obscurity, he was, his character was being formed, but ultimately, it's the remembering that helped David face his challenge. And this feels quite like a Sunday school point, but I actually think there's deep truth here, because the Psalms talk a lot about remembering. We've been singing about remembering today. We've been singing about remembering the goodness of God. And it's a simple first point that I want to make, that in the midst of David's victory, 
he was able to face the challenge ahead of him because he was able to point back and remember God brought me through that before. And I know this is a very simple point to make, but I imagine there are many, many challenges in this room today, upheavals in this room today. And I can only encourage us here today to not forget, to not forget how God has brought you to this point. If you're a person of faith today, to look back in your story and remember when God brought you through that and that and that, remember that God has been with you. And so when you go through another challenge ahead of you, he will be with you again. Remember the goodness of God. Remember his fingerprints in your story to this point. That's David's victory. It's the first simple point. This is the second point, David's failure. David is now king. It's spring, there's a battle ahead, and unlike David, he doesn't go out with his army, he doesn't lead from the front. David was someone who led from the front. And in this particular story in 2 Samuel, he doesn't do that, he stays back. And in a sense, that's poor judgment because what then went on to happen is one of the greatest, if not the greatest failure in David's life. And this is the story of Bathsheba. The story when David saw a beautiful woman and took her for himself. He saw that she was beautiful in appearance. He looked, he inquired, he sent for her. She fell pregnant. He then conspired to kill her husband in the battlefield so he could take Bathsheba as his wife. Let's just get this straight. This was rape. Think of the power dynamic there. There was a great darkness in David's soul. The man after God's own heart. And even he was so deeply, deeply flawed. This is the great failure in his life. He had the husband of Bathsheba murdered. Deception, I would say rape, conspiracy, murder, lying. This is a, a life full of very high highs and very low lows. This is a complex character. He probably thirsted for power as much as the next leader. And I guess the point I want to make is that, and yet, in that story, we see the grace of God. And in a sense, this is the story of God. That it's into the mess, into the mess of our lives, that God enters he does not abandon us when everyone else abandons us. He is still there. And in this story, it was actually David's honesty and his humility that helped him be revived and restored. There were serious consequences to his actions. There's always going to be consequences <laughs> to things like this, to mistakes, to, to, to sin, to evil. But David says to the prophet Nathan, Nathan had just rebuked David for this, and, he, and, and David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't even say that I have sinned against Bathsheba, which he had, or Bathsheba's wife, or her family. But he recognizes the gravity of this moment in his life. 
And Nathan says to him, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. The little son did pass away a week later. There was consequences to this moment in David's life. But I guess this is the second point I wanted to make. That is, in this story, we see God working in the mess because God shows up in the, in the midst of that. And it is down to this repentance, this honesty, this humility, that despite what he had done, David came to see that God was still there and still for him. There's a million ways that we can mess up. There's a million mistakes that we can make. But Redeemer, the good news today is that the story of God is that God is not just with us in victories, but in failures. And in fact, he, that is the gospel story, that he enters into the mess, and there are second chances, and third chances, and fourth chances, and 556th chances. And if you're here today, and you've written yourself off, God is not writing you off because we live and breathe in the sheer scandalous grace of God. And this is the gospel story that we've, we have come to know as Christians through Christ, through his story and through his invitation to enter into this family of God, to have our sins forgiven, to have this darkness dealt with, this death dealt with, to enter into life. God is the God of second chances and that is such good news today. Jonathan Martin is an author and a pastor and he says this, that when you get honest enough, God visits whether you invite God or not. There's a sense that even in facing reality and truth and honesty, that's a spiritual practice itself. God is in the midst of that. His presence is there. In fact, I think that Christians should be the most real people in the world. Like we should be able to stare reality in the face that we should be able to deal with the hard edges of life and not fear and not be despondent because we have the hope that is in God. I think Christians should be the ones that deal with realism the most, but not lose hope, whether that is in our own lives or the lives of others, because we are people who follow a God of second chances. We have David's victories, remembering God's goodness. We have David's failures, Receiving a second chance. This is the third point that I want to, the third point of the character of David that I want to draw out today. The scriptures talk about David as a man after God's own heart. How can, how can we how can this guy be the be a man after God's own heart? Like how can this guy be a man after God's own heart? Like and yet the scriptures talk about him being a man after God's own heart. It was certainly not due to his moral or ethical record. <laughs> it wasn't due to perfection. It wasn't perhaps due to his victories or his failures, but there's something about David's heart, something about his heart towards Yahweh, towards God, that ultimately David remained faithful to Yahweh in his success and in his failure, in his mess, he remained some way in communion with God. He had these moments of despair 
and perhaps moments of doing things his own way. He wandered at times, of course, but there was a sense that David always returned back to God. He was always drawn back. There was a kind of honesty and a humility there that he knew the goodness of God. He knew God in his life, and there was, his heart was for that, being in the presence of God, seeking after God. And at the base of everything, there was a, a desire to seek the face of God, which is evident when you read Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land. There is no water. Thus, I have seen you in this sanctuary. I have seen your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. In some ways, perhaps, it's because David was such a complex character, because he was so aware of his shadow, his feelings, that he could treasure the grace, the loving kindness, the hesed love, the commitment of God to him, even in all his mess. And there was a heart there that sought after God, had seen the beauty of the Lord in his temple, and had sought after him. We even see um, back in the story when Samuel the prophet is going to look, David's a shepherd boy back in the story. Samuel was sent to kind of find the next king because the first king wasn't working out. So he goes to Jesse's home and he's looking for one of the sons to become king because that's how they did it in those days. And there was this verse that says, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And it says that the Lord said, arise, anoint him, David. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. There's this sense that life with God as these ancients have shown, it, it isn't one of certainty or perfection or, or even nobility, even having a noble life or good intentions, but there's something about communion, about a heart that wants to commune with, with God. I, I kind of wonder, is, do you want that connection with God today? Do you want to have communion with the divine today? Do you seek to have that in your life? There's an integrity of the heart when we cultivate the inner world, when we pay attention to what's going on inside. And when we pay attention to God everywhere, we've looked at the life of Moses, the burning bushes that are everywhere in life. When we cultivate an ability to see the burning bushes everywhere, when we cultivate the wonder of a mystic, when we dream and live into the dream of God like Joseph, when we experience God in some way, when we taste that he is better than life, when we allow the spirit of God that was poured out of Pentecost, like we spoke about last week, to fill us and dwell in us, when we begin to give our yes to that spirit in us, when we get drawn back again and again and again and again to commune with the lover of our souls, as David poetically says, the, our creator the lover of our souls, our healer, our restorer, our rescuer. A few years ago, and I've shared this story many, many times, but I went through 
I think a season of, of depression and heaviness and I just did not know what way forward to go. And without getting into the details of all of that, um, I kind of stumbled somehow upon a very, very simple practice that helped me begin to cultivate something of this. We're talking about communion with, with God. How, how do we kind of go about that? And it was, it was simply just a, a very simple, it was really a Jesuit practice, but it was simply lighting a candle and sitting in front of a candle and just meditating on a candle and stilling my heart in the midst of what felt like chaos at times and what also felt like complete numbness at times and just inviting God to come. In fact, the prayer that, Ruth, you shared there today, we, we need you, Lord, I need you, is actually a fantastic prayer. Is it Anne Lamott that says there are three prayers? I love you, I need you, and I can't remember the third. There's like three, essentially all prayers fit into three. And that was a practice that somehow, somehow cracked open something over time in, in, in my life, some space in my life where I was able to just center myself and invite God's presence. In fact, discover that God was with me already and that I just needed, I needed to show up to his presence. And I kind of just share that because I imagine there might be some people in this room today and you are carrying a heaviness or you're facing upheaval or you're struggling with life or maybe you're here today and you're like, I kind of, I'm glad that I'm in church today, but it's also really hard and I kind of don't know what the next step is or maybe you've lost your job or maybe you're thinking about a change in life or maybe there's stuff going on, the world is going the way it's going. We don't know where it's going <laughs> and you just don't know where to go, what to, what to do. And I think the ancients, they show us that steps of faith are not about getting it right or believing the right things, but they're about this communion, this connection. And sometimes that feels really hard in a very, very fast world to get that. And sometimes we think, God, can you not just show up? But I promise you, because I've experienced it, that when you slow down, God's there. He is waiting He's kind of like hidden, but not hidden. He's, his invitation is subtle, and he will be tender. And I think there's an invitation for us today in the world that we live to follow this example of David, not as failures, not as victories, none of that, but simply this heart that was, had some kind of disposition toward the Lord, a kind of hunger for more. There's got to be more to life. I want to know my creator. I want to know the lover of my soul. I want to know this God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. There's so much going on in church life. Ruth, you were sharing stuff. Dan was sharing stuff. There's all those things that were talked about in the notices just before I came up. Um, there's ways to serve, welcoming the stranger. There's farm box ministry. There's tables to be involved in. But here's the thing. As a church... We need the experience, the communion with God. We need that, all of us. The knowing of God deeply, the communing with God, the, the inner life with God, the, the cultivating some kind of contemplative life, some kind of prayerful life, some kind of relational life with the Lord. These ancient men and women show that again and again if we are to sustain the works of the kingdom because here is what will happen redeemer 
that we will burn bright and burn out if we are just people of activism and people of justice and we don't have intimacy. Because the scriptures again and again talk about intimacy and action. We see Jesus performing the works of the kingdom and we see him retreating to be with his father. And we see him going back out to work, do the works of the kingdom and we see him retreating back to be with his father. We need both the intimacy and the action. We need kind of the worship life, prayer and justice to be a sustaining community that does life with God. If we are to pursue peace, justice, reconciliation, compassion, then we need what my hero Eugene Peterson calls the rhythms of grace. We need the rhythms of grace. Intimacy with God is this deep communion with, with God. And it feels, do you know what, it feels like what I'm asking you to do is pull out your phone and open the reminders app and then add one more thing that we gotta do. And it's like, ah, oh, another church preach on a thing that we gotta do I got to find this in my schedule this week and I feel, I feel that because life is busy and that is, but I really think this is so key for us. It doesn't have to be a time, but some kind of cultivating of your heart, some kind of looking toward God, some kind of, just a prayer of I need you today, Lord, something. In fact, let me encourage you, where would you start today? I would encourage you just to start with by slowing down. Just find some way in your existing life, whether that's on the treadmill, whether that's on a walk, just slow down. Just maybe turn that podcast off. Just breathe, do some, invite God to come. James 4.8 says, come near to God and he will come near to you. And I can't, I'm just encouraging us as a community to be a people of his presence, to be a people who cultivate communion with God, who get to know God. There's a pastor in the States that I love called Brian Zand, and he calls this sitting with Jesus. <laughs> and all he does is literally, he just sits in a chair and just waits in silence and just says yes, just invites Jesus to come. And invariably, his presence comes. There's some manna, some bread, some sustenance for that day. Of course, there's lots of practices and books and prayers that can help us do that, but in a sense, space, slowing down just for a few minutes every day, communing with God is what defines us as a people, the presence of God with us, experiencing God. I've gone on too long today, we're gonna to finish. But when we face an upheaval or a challenge in our lives, we need to look back at those lion and bear moments when God got us through before, because he will do it again. And we can draw strength and courage from remembering his presence was with us when we go forward. When we feel, if we feel, if we find ourselves in a mess, if you're here today and you find yourself in that place, God is with you. God is with us in those moments, the God of second chances. And he invites humility and honesty so that he can flow in his love to revive us, to renew us, to redeem us. And finally, the big point that I want to share today is despite the victories and the failures, the desire to just be with God, to be, a, to be a people of faith means to just be with God, will help us walk into the brave new world ahead of us. To walk forward 
will take faith because life is uncertain. We don't know what the future holds individually for our families, for one another. But the move from the known into the unknown requires faith. And faith is choosing to participate in that story. God is faithful. God is with us. God will be with us as we go forward. 1 Corinthians 13 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. Or Eugene Peterson says, We don't get to see things clearly today. We're squinting in a fog. We're peering into a mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then. We'll see it clearly as God sees us knowing him directly as he knows us. As much as the future is uncertain, God is with us. And then one day things will make sense. But to be people of faith requires trusting in the Lord and his faithfulness and communing with him. I'd love to invite you all to stand. And as Ruth has said, we in Redeemer practice um, communion every week. Every week we finish with communion. And ultimately I would think of it as the apex of our time together. In fact, if there was a choice between preaching and communion, we would ditch the preach every time because the table is what we're really here for, which is to receive the grace of God today, again for ourselves, to remind us through the taking of bread and wine, the story we're part of, the story of second chances, the story of God's faithful love. And so, no matter where you're at today, if you're part of the Redeemer community, you will probably be bored hearing this. You know it inside and out. But you are so welcome at this table. Everyone is welcome at this table. We don't make the guest list. It's Jesus' table. The only requisite to this table is that you want to be there. If you want to come and take communion today, come and take communion today. You will be blessed the bread that represents Christ's body, the wine that represents his blood, his sacrifice that makes a way for us, that gives us the grace of God, that invites life into our lives, that defeats death. That story is the story we are part of. So John and Eleanor are going to lead us in a song of worship. Um, we want to take communion. Just come forward. I kind of joke that it's kind of click and collect. You kind of come, get your bread and wine, return to your table, hold it, don't take it, and then after the song, I'm going to come up and lead us. Um, I'm going to lead us in communion together. Um, let's pray before we before we sing. The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell 
in the house of the Lord forever. Father, we thank you for these beautiful words from this artist, poet, king, David, who who knew, Lord, that you're a God of faithful, hesed love, faithfulness, second chances, and you're a God who wants to commune with us, to lead us by still waters, to restore us, to bring peace where there's a lack of peace, to bring hope where there's a lack of hope, to fill us with your love. We pray that as we worship and as we come to the table today, that the love of Christ would indeed lead us beside those still waters, that we would be reminded of your goodness and your grace and your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.